This is the Village Church Q&A podcast, where our goal is to create digital, shareable, and helpful content to make disciples who will go, grow, and overcome. Welcome back to the Village Church Q&A podcast. Happy Tuesday to you, Pastor Michael Master... My name is Michael Fueling. I'm the pastor of the Old Church of Barlow. He's the master of the master, master of yeah, Apparently, Freudian slip. Shush. <laughs> okay, I'm embarrassed. But anyways, um, not really. And I'm in the studio here with Brianne Fueling. You were with us last week for most of the week, and you will be with us this week for some of it, hopefully all of it. And uh, we're answering questions about counseling. And the question for today is, can believers live in habitual sin? I obviously have a lot of opinions, but... You're the guest, and I honor you today. So what what do you think? All right. So let's start off by just defining sin. I'm a big definitions person. And so when we look at what sin is, since I was a little girl, I've defined it. Other people have told me that sin is in any way missing the mark. And so it's a concept of an archery term, right? That is like you have a mark, you have something that you're aiming for, and you've missed it, even in the slightest bit. I think a lot of people generally, even in the world, think of sin as some grotesque, gigantic aspect of their life. And it's not. It's really anything that is not holy, anything that is not perfect. And pretty much everything that we do is not holy and not perfect. And so when we look at that, what sin is, we see that it's in our hearts. We see that it's all around us and see that we are free from its powers when we believe in Jesus Christ. Mm. Yet it's something that we have to struggle to overcome. Even our best deeds are still not perfect. Right. They're tainted. They're influenced and tainted. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it's good. But when we look at this question, there is a difference between that and just that consistent battle that we have with our sin nature that we're seeking to overcome and that we're seeking to be purified from. But there's also this concept of these habitual sins. And I think a lot of times the question says, can believers live in habitual sin. And so I don't know if that's with the aspect of that they just kind of give themselves over to it, or if someone's really a believer, Mm. if they are continuing to do that. I'm not sure what the angle on that question is. My guess is typically the the angle that people have with this kind of question is, are you really a Christian if you have it? So I've actually never received the question in another angle, although I could see different angles that people could ask it from. Mm But the person's asking, I would guess, I'm going to put my bottom dollar on it. One of two things are happening. Either number one, they have a personal sin in their life that they just keep choosing. And they're wondering, like, could God still love me? My hunch is that that's where this is at. Or Mm -hmm. there have been a crew of people who on their judgmental high horses have said, if you have an habitual sin, then you're clearly not filled with the spirit of God and you are not a Christian. And this is the evidence of your lack of salvation, which Mm -hmm. I believe is a very graceless, condemning, judgmental in not a good way, perspective. And uh, mm-hmm. it fails to realize that the habitual sin of judgmentalism is a, um, habitual, sin. Is a habitual sin. So, um, or yeah, arrogance or whatever else. So let's talk to this person, Pastor Orlin. Let's take it from the framework of, look, I'm struggling and I keep falling into the same stupid sin. So major categories that I have dealt with, and mm-hmm. you can give me your own categories, drugs, sex, Sometimes words. Mm-hmm. Those would be like my big threes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think of like masturbation, anger, anything that kind of has almost like an addictive nature to it yep. is is what I'm thinking of. Whether that's like addiction that transfers around from like gambling, shopping, gluttony, all those kind of things. Right. Something that has kind of like a high that brings from it and then help is like a coping mechanism. Yep. So those are the ones that I would kind of think yep. of immediately. And typically if the person's asking the question, they know – what they're doing is sin. Right. Otherwise, they would be asking the question. Right. 
And it's hard to break from. Yeah. Whether for them or someone else. So can believers live in habitual sin? So yeah. Well, they do. They do all the time. <laughs> yeah. So yes. I think that they can. Now we get to this aspect of, is that okay? In some ways, there's a lot of different answers to that question and a lot of different ways that I could look in a person's life. And so again, like many questions I feel like we answer, it's very hard to make a blanket statement without knowing the dynamics of the question that mm -hmm. we're actually secretly answering. So let's narrow down to the basic dynamics. You have a person who is saved with a will and the will is choosing something that they don't need to choose. They're, cho they're making a volitional decision and they are choosing this thing regularly. Now, it is easier for them to choose it because they've been choosing it so often and regularly to the point where it's a part of their life. Right. And now they feel guilty over this decision. And or sometimes feels normal. Yeah, absolutely. But even in the normality, they feel guilty because they know that it's not approved or okay. Mm -hmm. So can they? Well, yes, they do. Mm -hmm. Should they? The answer is obviously not. Right. Could they, which is where the more judgmental people ask, the answer is mm. yes, they could. Mm -hmm. But what would you say to the person who's living in habitual sin and is wondering, am I going to go to hell because I have not been able to overcome this? Okay. So I would say, no, you're not going to go to hell. However, I think that you're missing an entire beautiful aspect of what your redemption in Jesus Christ could afford you in those day-to-day -day moments. And so I think it was Martin Luther who said that our heart is an idol factory. John Calvin. John Calvin. So close but not at all. Um, yeah, so that's exactly right. You're right. So when I look at so many of the things that we just mentioned, those are all activities and practices that our hearts and minds are coming up with that are producing these little demigods to satisfy our needs, to make us feel better, to switch the mm -hmm. channel in our emotions. It's idolatry. Mm -hmm, exactly. And that's what I was going to end with is that it's like it's complete idolatry. So even all through the Old, New Testament, New, Old Testament and through the New Testament, you see this common theme for pretty much every person, that they look to these small, little, pithy opportunities to free them, to release them, to bring them joy yep. and redemption. And it's all temporary time, satisfaction mm -hmm. or release. You know, it's not mm -hmm. playing the long game. It's not considering the outcomes. But that's honestly, isn't that what happens, though? Like all of the emotions, if it's sexuality or masturbation or anger, there's this immediate release you get from participating in it. Exactly. And that is so um, addicting. And it is so, in some ways, it makes you feel like you have just made something better. But Even that, though it's followed with immediate guilt. Exactly. Yeah. In that, when we look at that habituation of the sin, we see that it's really, again, like you said, idolatry and trying to feed something in a way that Jesus has already been the answer to. I think probably the greatest thing when we look at that is that I think a lot of people that I talk to in this circumstance in some ways, they become comfortable with the habituation of their sin because it's, it's normal. normal or it's it, that's just something that I, I do. You only feel guilty for struggle. so long until you start numbing out the exactly. guilt. That's just a defense mechanism in exactly. what we do. And I think my greatest desire, whether it's my shepherding heart or just seeing that that struggle, the soon as we begin to accept it in any way, shape, or form or numb ourselves to it. It grows. It grows so much. Yep. And that is such a dangerous place for mm. all of us to be in a place where we have accepted something as part of us. Which if you're going to use like anger, sex, drugs, all three of these, two of them specifically warned in scripture, okay, mm -hmm. that they have a unique power, yeah. right? And we already know drugs do. I mean, I don't think the Bible had the clear categories that, we're, that they were not able to manufacture mm -hmm. the drugs that we have today. Mm -hmm. I don't think they have categories for them. And so, but I think it's safe to say that if they did, the scriptures would definitely address it and say all three of these are 
consuming experiences that if you give in a little, if, if they are not contained, for mm-hmm. example, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. There's something about what happens according to God in the rhythm of the universe and how he's made us that if we allow this to go on for more than a couple hours, it begins to consume us. And right. sexuality, if it doesn't stay within the boundaries of sacrificial marriage, then it, it begins to consume us. And drugs, obviously, certain kinds that once you do them, they consume you. Mm-hmm. And then they become normal. Mm-hmm. and But that's how they're wired. Once you take them out of their boundaries, Scripture actually warns us of these things. I think alcohol would be the closest equivalent you would get. If it if you start going toward drunkenness, it consumes you. Absolutely. And then takes over your life. When I was a senior in high school, we had to memorize the entire chapter of Romans 6. And I think that is such a great passage to make seniors in high school memorize. Yeah. And I think a lot of times when I'm processing these own issues in my own heart, these Verses come back to me again and again because we have such an easy way of negotiating habitual sins in our own mind or downplaying them or feeling hopeless um, or stuck. And so Romans 6 says the whole concept of the chapter is to show us that we are actually dead to sin, that it has no power over us, and we have been made alive to Christ. And so verse 1 says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? And the whole chapter just goes on to really just identify this whole thinking process that Paul knows that we are so prone to, Mm -hmm. which is, well, I guess God will cover it and he'll forgive it. So feels good right now to give into this. I don't really have to change right now. I can probably change tomorrow or the next time that I encounter the situation. Not realizing the nature of it is to control us. Exactly. That's the dumb thing. Paul isn't saying that you're not going to struggle with sin. He's just saying it now has no power over you. You actually can say no to it. It's not the primary driving force of your soul or your mind. And yet, I think what's really important for people to know is that a Christian can give it control. Mm -hmm. But the reality, though, is that for the Christian, you can always take control back if you follow Scripture's principles and guidelines for it. If you don't play by Scripture's rules, you'll never overcome the sin. But God has given us simple methods and power to overcome them. I think the challenge is people are just like, oh, take this from me. And God's like, well, there's actually a process. One is exposing it. That's a big deal. Replacing it. You know, we talked about in our pornography podcast a couple of weeks ago, the four steps of overcoming habitual sin like this. Mm -hmm. And if you don't do all of them, then you're not going to actually overcome it, you know? Mm -hmm. And that is so, so incredibly true. We are so easily entangled by sin and we are so easily deceived by sin and these practices, which, you know, I think in First John 3, 4, they refer to them as a practice of sinning. So it's almost something that you've actually had to, like, practice and get better at. Um, and now you, like, excel at sinning in this way, which is so true of so many of the things that we've mentioned so far. Yep. But now you have to begin to practice righteousness. And you have to begin to practice and build into yourself a yep. love for doing what pleases the Lord, a hatred mm-hmm. for sin. And if you've and- been practicing sin— it's going to be easier to play sin. Right. And so I've said this before. I think I said it yesterday, but like whatever you feed grows. And so when you feed that sin, it grows. It gets better. It gets yep. bigger. It gets like more in control and powerful. And say, but same with righteousness. But you can feed both simultaneously. So righteousness in some areas of your life can grow. And you might be feeding 1% of your life in the small sin or 0.5%. But depending on what it is, it can start to take over 50% of your emotions. It can really 
really massively disrupt your entire life, even though it's something you only do for three minutes a day. It might be a drug, it might be sexual, it might be something. Those small percentages can begin to pervade and, and have a dark cloud of your entire life, your relationship with God, your relationship with other people. And yet we think because it's just one minute or three minutes, right. it's not that big of a deal. And that's the way the Lord designed our hearts to respond to sin because he continually says that he's a jealous God and he wants all of us. And so it's not a ratio. It's not a percentage point where we feel like, oh, I got, you know, like I'm 98% good today and only 2% sinful. Like he has no category for that because he wants all of our heart. He wants all of the parts of us to be pure. He wants all of us to be submitted to him and enjoying him in a way that he is able to say like, I want to be the answer to your needs and mm. I want to be the one who fulfills them. So let's talk to this person. Like a couple of things that I would want to say to them is number one, you're not saved by works and you don't go to hell by works. Mm -hmm. And that's really important to understand. Number two is that habitual awesome, sin. It's way. yes. Habitual sin is an experience that the majority of humanity understands. Mm -hmm. Jesus has allowed some people to live in habitual sin for a week, for a month, for a year, sometimes for six years, sometimes more, sometimes less. Sometimes he just intervenes and he mm -hmm. stops it like right away. One of the realities though of fruit, which is your behavior and your decisions and your emotions, all these different aspects, how the biblical concept of fruit manifests itself is that your fruit will never be perfect, but you are forfeiting. That's, that's the thing I want to look to somebody. I want to say you're forfeiting fruitfulness, effectiveness, ministry, power, usability by God. I do believe right. that there are some people that God would actually use you had you controlled your life. Absolutely. But because you didn't, he's mm -hmm. like, sorry, I'm going to use Billy Bob or Susie Q instead. And I think a lot of people that I meet with and they come in because of that frustrated aspect, right? Or like they that loss or that sense of like the Lord isn't measuring up to what I would expect him to do in my life. And it's sad to be able to see, well, we aren't able to parse out the way that the Lord works all the time. But there's a good chance that because of that habitual sin and your attachment and your acceptance of it, that that actually does stand in your way mm -hmm. of the Lord working and um, using you in that way because you're numb to something that he hates. The one thing that stands between 99.875% of people who have habitual sin, that this is the reason they're not going to overcome it. It's the same issue with pornography. It's because they are too prideful to expose it and to put yes. light on it. Yes. The number one thing everybody with habitual sin needs to do is shine a bright light on it mm -hmm. in the right context with the right people. Right. But as long as it's dark, as long as it's not 100% fully exposed to those right people, mm -hmm. it will grow. Period. That's it. Yep. And that's where the person asking this question, if you're the one in habitual sin, I'll just look at you and say you will always be in habitual sin until you put light on it. Absolutely. I, I tell people all the time and when I try to think about my own heart, it, nothing good grows in the dark. Like mm -hmm. scientifically, like not much good grows in the dark. Bad, gross, disgusting yep. things grow Mold. in the dark. And they can grow, but they're not good for us and they're destructive and they make us sick and it's hard. And so when we look at keeping things covered, when we look at pushing things under the rug and keeping them there or turning the lights off in a little closet in our hearts and saying, you know what? Oh, no, that is ugly and not something I want people to see. We actually are investing in the growth of that problem. It's an investment that we've made to doing the opposite of overcoming. We're, sub, we're succumbing to those things and we're actually investing in that direction. In that way, my greatest desire, like you said, is for people to be exposed and to make that conscious decision. I think I've probably talked before, but one of the things I often, probably too often talk about is the concept of doing the opposite 
So when we find ourselves in habitual sin, a lot of these behaviors are cyclical and they're hard because there's like a spinning nature. Now we're like on a ride, whoosh. Same with abusive relationships, same with a lot of relational dynamics. There's a cyclical purpose to them and an experience. And so one of the greatest things that we have to do in a cyclical experience is just to do something different. And so when we feel compelled to hide, sometimes it's very hard to figure out what to do. And so the concept of doing the opposite is just to say, okay, well, what's the opposite? The opposite of hiding is coming and showing people Mm -hmm. and inviting them into that. And I don't know what that looks like. And that's terrifying. However, that's what needs to happen. And nothing good will happen until that is exposed and invited into what is the opposite of continuing to pursue this behavior. It is learning how to stop it. And a lot of these things in the opposites are things that we don't have the skill to do Hmm. because we've never done them before. But the things that we have to pursue, wisdom from other people, accountability from other people, knowledge from other people, or books or different resources to be able to pursue, to be able to understand, to stop. Mm. And so when it comes to habitual sin, I think one of the greatest tools that we can have is that holiness and purity is the opposite of sin. So do the opposite of what your whole being is telling you to do and run with that. Yep. Reminds me of a song. Hmm. You heard that song? I'm gonna throw this Christmas tree at you. <laughs> <laughs> but be, I'll do the opposite and keep small, it on the table. Must be a small Christmas tree. <laughs> I'm very strong. You're amazing. So with that, uh, I want to invite you back to come back. I want to invite you back to come back. That rhymes. We could wrap this. That Would you like to come back word. tomorrow? It doesn't. It doesn't I know. Rhyme. I know. <laughs> Would you like to come back tomorrow? Mm-hmm. All right, then here's the question. We're going to answer tomorrow. My goodness. Uh, why doesn't God rid me of fear and stress? Mm. 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 So we'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.